This is Dean Mathis, the Director of Capital Ministries, Michigan. It's been 10 weeks since I produced an audio study for distribution. I come by and I drop off either a CD, if you still have a, a CD player in your car or that you use to listen to the study, or of course it's automatically downloaded on capitalministriesmichigan.org, and you can listen to it on any internet device at your leisure. But these are done so that you can have a Bible study available to you, say, when you're commuting at a time that uh, you may have some time on your hands to do it. So it doesn't take any extra time out of your day, but you can edify your spiritual life by listening to something about the Word of God. We're in Hebrews chapter 5, and we're going to pick it up in verse 11 and go through chapter 6, verse 8, where we're continuing our discussion that the writer of the Hebrews is making to his audience. The writer of the Hebrews is a first-generation Jewish Christian, Jewish believer in the Messiahship of Jesus, who lives outside the Roman area, the Roman province of Palestine. He doesn't live in Judea or Galilee or any of those places where the majority of the Jews' population lives in the area that was the traditional homeland of the Jews, the area that is now today known as the nation of Israel. These Jewish believers are obviously going through a period of persecution that is severe enough that they, some of them are considering dropping out of their walk with Christ, disassociating themselves from the uh, congregations that worship Jesus as Messiah, from the churches, the Jewish churches, and going back into Judaism. They are going to, in essence, sort of renounce their faith. They're going to apostatize, go back into Judaism. And then later they surmise, we can be reconverted. We'll just come back and we will recommit to Christ. And if need to, we'll resubmit to baptism and we will then get on with it because the pressure will be off of us. And what the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying is that, no, you can't do that. There are some serious consequences if you do that. One of the serious consequences is going to be something that is going to happen politically and historically in the nation of Israel. It's recorded in in Matthew when Jesus, halfway through his ministry, came to a turning point in which the crowds were demanding to know from the spiritual leaders whether or not Jesus was the Messiah, what they thought. And they had to come up with an explanation that would account for the fact that Jesus was indeed doing miracles, healing and other miracles, which were a testimony to the fact that he was indeed the Messiah. And the people were demanding to know from particularly the Pharisees Is it true that Jesus is the Messiah? It seems to be in our mind that he is. And so the religious leaders had to come up with an explanation for why they were rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. And they said, well, we're rejecting him that he is a Messiah because we think he's doing these miracles that he does, not by the power of the Holy Spirit, but by the power of the devil. In other words, they accused him not of being the Messiah or the Christ, They were sort of accusing him of being like the Antichrist. He was doing what he was doing by the power of Satan. Now, Jesus rebuked that. But then he also said that they had crossed a line that they couldn't uncross, that the nation was now on a path to destruction. And that destruction would come 40 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in the destruction of Rome because of a Jewish rebellion of the entire nation of the Jews that is found in Galilee and Judea because of that revolt. And they would destroy the temple and they would destroy the city of Jerusalem and they would kill half of the Jewish population in the area of Palestine. And they would disperse 
tens of thousands of them across various parts of the Roman world, and they would press many thousands of them into slavery. They decimated and destroyed the nation, and it stayed decimated and destroyed until its reconstitution in 1948. So it was a period of tremendous judgment that would come on the Jewish people, and some theologians call that the unpardonable sin. It was not an eternal sin, it was a temporal sin, but it had consequences that once they had crossed that line and caused the nation to reject Jesus as the Messiah, there were consequences to the nation because the only hope for the Jewish people and the only hope for any of us is from the fact that Jesus is indeed the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament who fulfilled the prophecies made about what the Messiah would do in his first coming. And we also look forward to his second coming, as did these believers that lived around 64 AD at the time of the writing of this particular book. So he is encouraging them not to apostatize. He's encouraging them not to renounce their faith in Christ and go back into Judaism just to get the pressure off. He's encouraging them to trust the Lord to get them through this time of difficulty and persecution. Believers across the centuries have faced similar pressure and similar persecution, even up to the point of martyrdom. And the New Testament promises us that when we go through these tough periods that God will be with us and there are some special blessings that will come and there will be some special rewards in the age to come, like in the millennial reign of Christ and in eternity that will be ours because we have trusted the Lord through tough times and endured persecution for the sake of Christ. We have shared in the sufferings of Jesus that way. And sometimes that happens. There's always going to be persecution of Christian believers. A lot of times it's very subtle. Sometimes it becomes very obvious. And I've seen in my lifetime in the 20th century and now in the 21st century, areas of the world where people are brutally persecuted and killed, imprisoned and killed and treated awfully because of their faith in Christ. And there will be a special, special blessing for those folks in the here and now, and there's also a special blessing for them in the age to come. So I need to learn and be encouraged by them to be faithful and true and to keep religious freedom strong in my country so that it can be available as an example to other countries around the world. So let's pick it up in verse 11, where he is admonishing and encouraging these believers to stick by the stuff, to continue to grow in grace and not cave in, so to speak. And he's talking here about the fact that Jesus uh, is a superior priest to the Aaronic Levitical priest. And Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that's a discussion you'll come back to. But in verse 11, he kind of departs from it because he said, I need to stop and admonish you a little bit because you've kind of got to where you don't hear things anymore. You've regressed. You've gone back into spiritual infancy. So we pick it up in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 concerning him, that is this Old Testament figure of Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. It's not that difficult, but you've gotten to where you don't understand spiritual things. For though by this time, and you've, you've been saved long enough, you've been believers long enough, you ought to be teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. So he said, you've regressed to spiritual infancy, and we're having to go back and do the the basic ABCs for you. And it says, everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature, 
who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. It's the difference between, let's say, going to a church that has a Bible study program, a Sunday school program that begins with the smallest, with the youngest of children, preschool children, all the way up through mature adults. You don't teach four and five and six-year-old children the same way you teach adults. However, you have some adults that don't understand any more than four, five, and six-year-olds when it comes to spiritual things. And so there's always levels of spiritual understanding. And people who take what they know and put it into practice and who continually exercise spiritual discipline and study in their lives and continue to talk to God in prayer and continue to involve themselves in the life of the church and continue to take opportunities to find Christian service both in the church and out, these people grow up and are able to understand more and more things that the Bible teaches us about life now and the joys of spiritual walking with the Lord now, and then also the wonderful life that's coming for us in the future. But it takes a degree of maturity. A child can understand these things, but a child doesn't understand them at the level of, say, a person who's pursuing a serious course of theological study in a Bible-believing seminary. It's just levels of maturity. A child can understand basic math. It takes some maturity to understand advanced calculus and physics. There's a corollary to that in our spiritual lives. And so in chapter 6, he wants to step aside and give a parenthetical warning to them about this need that we have to go on and grow up spiritually in our walk with the Lord. And if we don't, then we find ourselves, even though we may mature physically, we find ourselves, and mentally, we find ourselves unable to really cope with things in a spiritually mature way. And we sometimes make some disastrous spiritual choices because we have not grown up and we've not progressed from infancy to actually becoming teachers of spiritual truths to other people by example and by our conversation with them. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, because that's true, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ or the Messiah, let's press on to maturity. Now, some translations translate that word perfection. It doesn't mean sinless perfection because the believer in this life after salvation will never be sinlessly perfect. There will always be a need to confess sin because sin is an endemic part of our natural nature that we receive from Adam. However, we receive a new nature and a new spiritual capacity when we receive Christ as Savior, which enables us to recognize sin and overcome it and have some degree of real experiential freedom from it and to live a more exemplary life and a more helpful life than we would have otherwise. Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about Christ, let us press on to maturity, that is to grow up, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instructions about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So what he's describing here are the things that go into the beginnings of our Christian walk. There is repentance that is changing my mind. I change my mind about who I am. I, I realize I'm a sinner. I change my mind about who Jesus is. I realize he is the son of God and he died for my sins and I, I believe in him. I know I can't save myself. That's uh, dead works. I can't save myself. I need a savior. 
then I have to put faith in God. I have to be convinced that it's true that Jesus lived a perfect life, died on a cross for my sins and rose from the dead. Those are things I do at the beginning. And verse two, he talks about the beginning things of my spiritual maturity. Washings, that's baptism and laying on of hands. That's when if I become an elder or a deacon or a pastor, there is a ceremony whereby the spiritual leaders of the church lay hands on the person and indicating that they are assuming a spiritual responsibility in the life of the church. And then I also learn about life after death, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. There's a judgment of blessing at the judgment seat of Christ for believers, which is a reward ceremony. There is a judgment of separation at the great white throne judgments, which is described in Revelation chapter 20. All of that is a part of the beginning of our walk with the Lord. And this we will do if God permits, verse 3. And then in verses 4 through 8, he does one of his little parenthetical warnings to encourage them not to consider apostatizing. Don't do it. Don't renounce your faith. Don't behave in a wicked way by renouncing Jesus and going back into the world system. Or as a believer, don't act like an unbeliever. Here's what he says. When the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now, verses 4 through 6, verses 4, 5, and 6 are all one sentence in Greek. They're all one sentence in English, really. So what he's saying here is, is that the idea that they have that they can be a believer and then they can become an unbeliever and then they can become a born again believer again is not possible because once you're saved, you're always saved. Because for you to be able to be saved and lost and saved again, Jesus would have to come back and die on the cross again. And that's not going to happen. Later, he's going to talk about the fact that Jesus died once for all. His sinless life, his atoning death on the cross, and his resurrection gets the job done for us. What happens if they do this and back off from this is that they will fall under the existential judgment that's about to come to the nation of Israel. In this life for us, when Christians apostatize, that is, they, in words and deeds, say one way or another, I, well, I once was a, a, a Christian, but I'm not that anymore. I don't believe that anymore. And they renounce their faith and they behave like lost people again. Then what happens is there are consequences in the here and now. And there are also consequences at the judgment seat of Christ and loss of rewards that they need to know about. In the case of these Hebrew Christians here living in the land of Palestine at 64 AD is that right down the road in about six years, they could suffer a premature physical death. In the writings of Paul in the New Testament, talks about Christians who died before their time. John talks about a sin that is unto death, that is, a Christian dying before his appointed time, as a punishment for a wicked life. Now, all of that is really a very big uh, subject which would require an interesting study in the future. But what I'm saying is he's just warning these people that, look, you have borne evidence in your lives of the fact that you really understood who Jesus is and that you really believed in him and that you were really converted. 
Now you can't get unconverted, but what you will happen to you is like what happened to the Jewish people at Kadesh Barnea is that you will suffer a judgment in the here and now. And that's what God wants to save you from. Verses seven and eight, he says, for the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed. It ends up being burned. Now, not the land isn't destroyed, but the fruit of the land is destroyed. And he said, if in your life and in my life, I produce good works to the glory of God, because I'm trusting the Lord to get me through times when it's not quite so hard to share Jesus and times when it becomes maybe even a threat to my very physical life, martyrdom, to stay true to Jesus. In all those cases, the Lord will be with me. In all those cases, there's a blessing for staying true to my profession of faith as a Christian. Persecution comes in many forms. And in our culture, it's not as overt as it is in some other cultures. But I know from talking with people who try to work in the academic world, I know with talking to those of you that work in the political world, I know people in the business world, I know in the moral world, I know that there are many, many temptations to believers to not stay true to the Lord and not stay true to their commitment as Christians and to behave in thought, word, and deed like lost people. And it always costs you something. I spent my entire ministry as a pastor, 36 years pastoring the same congregation in a town in New Mexico. And I I saw it all. I saw people who became believers and who consistently grew in their faith and went on to become really terrific adults. Some of them going into vocational ministry, many of them becoming lay leaders in the church and in churches where they, uh, when they moved away and assumed their careers and are to this very day, tremendous blessings. I saw others who walked away from their commitment to Christ and suffered spiritual loss. In many cases, they suffered an awful lot of heartbreak and tragedy in their lives. And it affected them. It affected their children. It affected their grandchildren in some cases. So the writer here is giving us words from the Lord about the fact that when things get tough, that's when the grace of God really gets wonderful. That's when God will do something special that we will not find any other way. So we're not to be afraid of it when trouble comes and trouble to our lives because we are believers in Jesus. We will find ways with the help of God and with the grace of God for us to not only endure it, but for us to actually triumph in it and to see something and to learn something about fellowship with Jesus that we won't learn any other way. That's part of the point of this little parenthetical warning that he gives us. Hang in there. God is with you. This hasn't taken God by surprise. And this is happening to you not because you've done something wrong, but because you've done something right. And God will bless that. Just like he had Jesus triumph over the grave and someday Jesus will be king of kings and lord of lords. And he already is spiritually in the hearts of those who believe him. The same kind of triumph is for us existentially day by day, but also in the future. The future is for those who believe in Jesus. Jesus is the future. So don't forget that, uh, particularly when there are times of stress that come. That's part of what the lesson is today in this material that we're studying. May God richly bless you.